Hi, my name is Michael Warren. I'd like to give you some background on one of my best friends. I call him my brother from another mother. Your host, Jed Hughes. Jed climbed up the football coaching ranks working for and alongside seven Hall of Fame coaches, including Chuck Knoll, Bud Grant, Tony Dungy, and Bo Schimbeckler, just to name a few. Now, I met Jed at my alma mater, UCLA, where I was an All-American basketball player and two-time captain for a couple of Coach John Wooden's championship teams. While Jed was a great defensive coordinator at UCLA recruiting a historic class, I was a cast member on the Emmy Honor television series, Hill Street Blues. Jed somehow creatively involved me in his recruiting pitch, and that turned out to be a lot of fun. After a great stint at UCLA, Jed worked in the NFL for the Minnesota Vikings, Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Cleveland Browns. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Jed holds a master's degree from the University of Stanford and a PhD from the University of Michigan and has led the sports consulting practice for two global executive search firms. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri, and four of the five power conference commissioners, along with many athletic directors and C-suite executives across the industry. I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes podcast. Through this podcast series, Jed will dive into what makes leaders, coaches, and executives great, and what separates the Hall of Famers from the rest. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Welcome to the Jed Hughes Podcast. I'd like to welcome the 1983 graduate of Bucknell University, who earned both the most valuable player and leadership awards his senior year, has currently been the head coach at Villanova University for the last 19 seasons, and has won multiple NCAA championships. His players graduate that stay four years, represents character, integrity, and ethics. Our guest, Jay Wright. Coach, uh, thanks for being my guest. Uh, I've admired you from afar. And uh, as I look at the different awards that you've won, the one that really is sensitive to me is the Wooden Award. I spent uh, six years at UCLA John Wooden, who'd been their head coach and won 10 national championships, had just retired. His locker was across from mine, and he befriended me. And almost every home football game, he took me to breakfast. So the opportunity to listen to him and, and to have conversation and his thoughts about uh, people, teams, structure, individual skills, was unquestionably the best. Did he have any kind of impact on you uh, 
Uh, you won the award. I mean, how do you look at Coach Wooden and what he accomplished? And thanks for having me on. It's, it's nice to speak to you. You know, as, as you and I spoke earlier, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very impressed with what you've done in your career, and I love just uh, learning from people that have had the experience you have. And uh, you know, as you say that about uh, the Wooden Award, as you know, coaching you, the awards really don't mean much to you. Um, I, I would tell you, I, I wouldn't even know. I'm embarrassed to say where that award is. I'm sure it's at Villanova somewhere. Getting that call and, um, you know, having met uh, his daughter uh, and, and, you know, what I was out of the, those awards earlier with some of our players who are candidates for the Wooden Award National Player of the Year. And um, I would spend time just asking his daughter questions about him. I loved his approach as a as an educator. I loved his um, discipline. I loved his uh, simplicity, consistency, and and most of all, I loved his character. And um, so, like most coaches of of probably my era, um, I read everything I could about him. So. They called me about the award, and, and, and then I, I got to see uh, Nan later, and she said, you know, you, re you remind me some of my father. That was probably the greatest thing I've ever experienced in coaching. Wow. Um, and it was, it was, so that award to me, you know, it's, it's not the award, you know, it, it was that experience. And, and uh, those things was, are unique. Yeah, it was really, really meaningful to me, and it, to be to be mentioned with him in any way, I just, I just truly think he was not just a great coach, a great man, and and that's you know what we all strive to be most importantly. No, I would, I would, I would agree, and I would say that those will be some of the real accolades that they continue to use regarding you. Um, the pandemic and your and Patty, and how did it affect you personally? We'll talk about the team later, but how did you how did you and your wife adjust to this? <laughs> it's funny, you know. You you having been a coach, you know that's the question to ask. How did right. you and your wife? Because it's just a totally different lifestyle um, with your wife, you know, because you're not home so much, and she's always uh, on your schedule. You know, as we talked, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but with Coach Wood, and that was not, that was another part of of him and and, and his uh, relationship with Nell that uh, I, I think was a big part of his success and and as a coach and and as a man was his relationship with his wife, and I, I feel just as blessed with with my wife Patty. I I'm not as uh, I, I don't I'm. I'm still learning and, and probably not as um, probably uh, well-rounded as Coach Wooden was. I, Patty Moore keeps me in line. I could, I could go work a, I could go the workaholic way, easy. And at times in the past, I have, and Patty always brings me back. And Patty usually has to suffer from my craziness, but it has been an enjoyable experience with her. Um, 
she she did have a great line early. You know, we have we have three children. Um, two are one's twenty, but two boys, twenty seven, um, twenty six, and my and my daughter's twenty one. So they all quarantined with us. The, my two boys' girlfriends quarantined with us. So they everybody was working from home. We have two dogs and a cat, and and so we had everybody there, which was really a great experience. But within the first three or four days, Patty made it very clear. She said, no one here works for you. We don't play for you. We don't work for you. You're not coaching this pandemic. And so she set the tone real early. And uh, as we went through it, it was very clear. I was, I was like the scrub walk-on in that, in that uh, dynamic, that family dynamic during our our um, uh, quarantine and, and it was actually it got to be enjoyable and it was a great learning experience. I, I tell you it really has given people an opportunity to get a lot closer to their family with that question and uh, I'm glad you and your family have been able to you know, benefit from that. So you, you began Council Rock North. Uh, were you a basketball player from the beginning or various sports or how did basketball become your thing? Well, actually, um, I started playing football at the age of six uh, on an 80-pound team. And I was 60 pounds at six years old. And I played on an 80-pound weight team. And I was the center on the team because my dad was the coach. And my dad was an offensive guard in the old wing T offense. And... Uh, he believed that the center was the most important position. So he put his son at center, not quarterback. And I, you know, I didn't, I was six. I didn't know any better. And I, he told me what an important position it was. I mean, ran the wing tee and, um, I, you know, I, I, who know, you know, I had no, you know what your dad tells you, you're six, you know? And I love, you know, I loved it. And he was a football guy, baseball guy second. So he had me playing football and baseball first, and um, he never played basketball ever. And as a matter of fact, you know, when I first started playing, he saw that I liked a little bit. He said, that, that's a sissy sport, you know, they're, they're like tough guy sports. But eventually, as he started to see, I started playing that the latest, but as he started to see my love for it and passion, of course, then he, he supported me, but never, ever coached me in basketball and you know he wasn't one of those overbearing guys or anything he was a great coach as a matter of fact I learned so much from him and, and, and a lot of what he did coaching us in baseball and football I still use but um, I just fell in love with basketball in that you could go out on the court by yourself and um, and work on your game and I just loved that time alone on the court working on my game I loved it and then you know, the team aspect I always loved, like I did in every sport. And then Bucknell, four-year starter, uh, MVP, leadership award. But a lot of people probably wouldn't know what your first job was. It was in the sport you did as a six-year-old, and that was going to work for the Philadelphia Stars and the USFL. How about, how'd you end up there? You know, it was, it was, um, an amazing opportunity and something that, again, still uh, impacts me to this day. Um, 
I just talked to Vince Papali yesterday <laughs> with with Doug Peterson. They were they're down in Florida together. Vince Papali was my mentor, and I worked for the Stars, the Philadelphia Stars of the United States Football League. But um, I I was supposed to go to Drexel University as a graduate assistant basketball coach, and um, after graduating from Bucknell, in that summer I just thought, you know what, I, you know, I wasn't, I was probably smart, but not motivated academically I did decently um, but I didn't want to go back to school and the, the stars were opening and, and they were just getting going in the United States Football League in the spring I interviewed for a job got a marketing position and just loved it and um, Carl Peterson yeah he uh, was, was the, our, he the president he was our president and um, Billy Coherick was was general manager and um, um, Chuck Fusina was our quarterback. It was, it was an amazing time. Jim Mara was our head coach. Vince Papali worked in the marketing department. And I was, you know, 22 years old. And, and I met my wife there. And Vince kind of took me and my wife under his wing and, and we did a lot of marketing together. And so many people from that organization. I'm still – Terry Bradway yep. was uh, head of scouting. And so many of those people are still good friends to this day. and um, and. Uh, I learned so much from, you know, watching Carl Peterson, Jim Moore, literally build an organization. Right. Um, it, it was incredible. And we won two championships. It was, it was really, I was only there one year. Right. Carl Peterson helped me get my first head coaching, excuse me, basketball coaching job at the University of Rochester. He wrote me an incredible letter of recommendation to get an, to get an assistance job at division three. But it, that hit me right there. The president of a professional football team took the time to write a two-page handwritten letter to recommend me for that job. And I was I was a lowly marketing rep. And it, it, I've never forgotten that in terms of people that work for us at Villanova and always trying to help our guys in their careers because I still stay friendly with Carl to this day, but remember the impact he had on my career. So now Carl was always an impeccable dresser, as I remember. <laughs> yes. Now, did you get that? Did you get the, uh, the haberdashery and, and, the, and the idea of, of dress from him? Did he influence <laughs> all in your wardrobe? You're right about that, man. For, it's funny. For a football guy, you know, he, you're right. He really did. But uh, actually, I got to give it to my mom. I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I always remember she dressed us nice. I, you know, I don't know. I mean. We didn't have a lot, but um, we always had like certain clothes that were like dress clothes. And I'm, I don't know, she, she got me, she got me into it. She, she always would get good deals on it at TJ Maxx and places like that. But she, 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 she kind of taught me something about that and it stuck with me. So you, you're at Rochester, you get an opportunity to come to Drexel. Uh, and that goes for several years. And then the late Raleigh Massimino get you to join his staff at Villanova. What was, had you known him in the past or how did he uh, find out about you? Jed, I like the way you put that. Uh, Roly Massimino got me to join his staff. I would, I would have crawled to work for him. I was, I was uh, begging to work for him. Um, at that time, that was 1987. Uh -huh. He was two years off the national championship. And I used, you know, I grew up in Philly and yeah. 
and um, my parents didn't go to college. So in Philadelphia, they have the big five, as Penn, St. Joe, Temple, LaSalle, Villanova. So as a basketball guy in Philly, you root for all those schools, but Villanova was my favorite and he was my favorite coach. So I used to work his basketball camps in the summer, uh, you know, as an instructor. And uh, and really that was enough for me. I used to, in, in my little world, brag about working at Rosie Massimino's camp. So um, he took a, a liking to me when I was at the camp. And um, when the job opened at Drexel, when his assistant's job opened, I um, applied and Steve Lapis, who was assistant at the time, who then who later became the head coach, he ran the camp and he really backed me for that position. And, um, you know, if, if I would have been in my mind back then, if I would have remained the assistant to Roy Massimino at Villanova for the rest of my life, I, I would have been in heaven. I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world working for uh, uh, who I, I felt was the best coach in the country at a, a school that I rooted for and for a team I rooted for. It was, it was an incredible step in our career and, and um, it was a dream come true for me. So things really change. I mean, you have success and then all of a sudden UNLV comes. I mean, how did Raleigh make that decision? I mean, you're replacing, you know, a, a person in Tark the Shark that's got this history about him and you go into that program. What was that move like to the strip with a family uh, and what you inherited? Unbelievable, Jed. If I would have known, I was so naive back then. And um, I learned, I probably learned more from our experience in Las Vegas at UNLV in two years than I've learned my entire career in coaching. Uh, everything that I learned there was so valuable. I loved our two years. Um, you know, and, and as you know, coach's wife, you know, we, we had just found out we were pregnant with our first child um we were at villanova my wife's a villanova alum former villanova cheerleader her brothers went to villanova we're we're at home she's from south jersey everything was perfect we're gonna have our, our first baby and we're now we're we're leaving las, we're leaving to go to las vegas and my wife was all in you know she's like let's go you know let's say that's a great opportunity i'm i'm up for the challenge and so as we know with coaches wives they're so important in, in your in in your life obviously but your career and when we got out there it was it was it was crazy following Jerry Tarkanian and uh you know they really didn't we didn't know this but no one in the town wanted us there they still wanted Jerry Tarkanian there so we're in town coaching the rebels who the town loves and they don't want us there and, you know, I could write a book on those two years, but what I learned there was invaluable. And it's a, probably affected every decision I've made throughout my career in coaching. I always refer back to experiences and lessons learned at UNLV. What would a couple of those be? I mean, obviously, the way he went after recruiting and some of the trouble, he, did it help you kind of define the type of person you were going to be looking for once you got your own program? Yeah, just one thing, you know, working at Villanova and, you know, I went to Bucknell, I coached at University of Rochester, high-level academics, Drexel, high-level academics, Villanova, high-level academics. I didn't know that I didn't know what was going on in college basketball. Right. 
And when I got to UNLV, I was so naive as to really what was going on in recruiting in college basketball. And uh, there was a, Dave Rose, who became the head coach at uh, BYU, was a junior college coach um, at um, in St. George, Utah. I believe it was called College of Eastern Utah at the time. And um, I, I always, we've remained friends because I, I met him the first couple of days there and he realized, like, here's a young kid from the East Coast. He has no clue what he's doing out here. Like, just for instance, Coach Massimino would make us wear, we had to wear a shirt and tie every day to work in the office. And when we were recruited, we had to wear a shirt and tie. So dude, that was the East Coast thing. You know, that was at Villanova. I'm stepping into gyms in Southern California with a shirt and tie, and everybody's in flip-flops and T-shirts, coaches. Yeah. And people look at us like, what are these guys? These guys have no idea what they're doing out here. And we didn't. We we had no clue of the West Coast. We we had no clue about junior colleges because you, you you couldn't recruit junior college kids from Villanova, right? And and uh, or Drexel or University of Rochester where I had been. So there was a lot of guys like I'll tell you what um, Steve Lavin at the time was an assistant. Um, Dave Rose, as I said, was a head junior college coach. Um, there were a lot of guys that took me under the wing and realized said this is an East Coast kid who has no clue what he's doing. We're going to teach Ben Howland. We're going to teach him a little bit about the West Coast. And I can't say I ever really got good at it. I went back East. Yeah, went back to Austin as the head coach. Yeah, and found out, I, like, I really need to be back on the East Coast. I don't, I don't know what's going on out here. Well, somehow you, you go into Hofstra, team struggling, and you end up turning the program around, end up getting the two NCAA tournaments. When you're turning a program around, like that, what are the one or two things that you have to do in order to get it changed? Well, Jed, I, again, the people at Hofstra, the, the president, Dr. Schuert, and um, Harry Royal, the athletic director, I, I owe a great deal of gratitude um, because you know it took me, t it took us time, and I really wasn't good in the beginning. Uh, again, you don't know that at the time; you're trying your best. But, um, you know, I thought Roly Massimino walked on water. So when I got the job there, I was trying to do everything like Roly Massimino. And I, was, and, and I was trying to be like Roly Massimino because that's what I learned and that's what I knew. And so, a lot of the things worked, but a lot didn't. They just, I wasn't Roly Massimino. And, and I remember Coach Massimino actually left UNLV uh, after our first, actually during our first year at Hofstra, and uh, he came back to watch one of our games, and and I was trying to really copy everything he did, and he, we got blown out by Dartmouth in our first year, and Dartmouth wasn't even that good, and my assistant was taking him to the airport, and my assistant later told me, Coach Massimino said to him, "Does he know what the hell he's doing?" It looked so bad, and I, and it really crushed me because I think, yeah, I'm trying to be him. That's what I'm trying to do. And I really learned after like two years, we, we were not winning, and it didn't even look that good for the next year. And I said, I gotta be, I gotta be myself. If we're gonna go down here, and this is gonna be the end of my coaching career, I gotta, I gotta do things that that I feel comfortable with, that I believe in. And I took the approach like, if if we're gonna go down, meaning 
you know, if, if this is going to be the end of my coaching career, this is my one head coaching experience, and it didn't look good in the beginning, I want to make sure I don't regret it later. I'll just make sure I'm going to do things that I believe in, do things my way. And then at least I don't have to worry if I get fired that I say like, I wish I would have done it my way. And it, and it started to turn around and, and, and I've always kept that even at Villanova here in the beginning when it wasn't working, I was thinking I'll listen to everybody else. I'll learn, but I got to be comfortable with the decisions I make myself. And, and I can't, fear the failure only thing I got to fear is not doing what I believe in and, and I think that helped us so Villanova comes calling you've been there 19 years when you came in and, and you took some of the learnings that you described from Hofstra how did you lay out your strategic plan well you know having had the experience of Hofstra really helped at Villanova in terms of learning how to be patient, knowing that you can have a couple bad years and it can still get going. Understanding the culture was most important, um, not winning right away, getting the right people in right away. For instance, um, when we took over at Villanova, we took over late in the spring and uh, they had signed, there was four or five recruits that they had signed that would be coming in as freshmen for us the next year. And I learned from our Hofstra days, if you know, they're, they're going to be the backbone of your program, that's going to be your first class. They better represent the things that you believe in, and they better be the ones that can eventually um, teach what you believe in. So we got to know those kids, and we watched film on them, and really, none of them really fit. And we, we had to have hard conversations with each one of them. And we said, look, you're a good basketball player. You're, you're not going to fit what we're trying to do going forward. So we're not going to renege on the scholarship. You can come here and, and try to fit into our program. But it, it doesn't look like I know what we want, and it just doesn't look like you're going to fit. You, there's other programs you could fit. And, and we're still going to honor your scholarship. But – in the next class, we're going to try to go out and get guys that that fit. And we were really hard conversations. And, and, you know, we were really sensitive to those kids wanting to come to Villanova. But all of them – and we helped them go elsewhere. All of them went elsewhere. We, we And we brought in one guy. But we were patient enough to that next class get guys that would believe in our core values. And were coming because they wanted to play for us and be a part of our – core values. And that class was Randy Foy, Alan Rage, Jason Frazier, Curtis Sumter, who eventually went on to be our first Big East champions, Sweet 16, Final Eight, and really the backbone of our program. So having the patience and the experience to know that really helped them. And that, we, we learned that the hard way at Hofstra. So how did you approach the one and done? I mean, you'd seen what it was like recruiting some of those uh, characters at UNLV, and you're in a business that's really high pressure as it relates to these five-star recruits. How have you approached that one-and-done player as opposed to these players that stay for you for four years and end up graduating? I mean, you've had success with some of your players leaving early and going, going into the NBA, but you've had a balanced approach, which I think has really paid off for you. 
quote, yeah, there's a lot of interesting points there, Jed, in that uh, I, I shouldn't know the exact number, but I would, I would say 90% of our guys have stayed for four years. And um, uh, I actually have to get that exact number. But every single guy that's stayed for four years has graduated on time in four years. Every single one, 100%. And we take great pride in that. And that's really what the core of our program is because every guy that has left early, they came there with the goal in mind that they were going to be there for four years and they were going to get their degree. Every guy that we recruited, we were saying to them, we want you to come here to be here for four years and get your degree. That's what we want. We want you to be an educated man, the best player you can be, and we want you to be a worldly, spiritual man that knows how to handle yourself going forward. If you don't want that, don't come here. Now, if during that process, like a Sadiq Bay this year, no one, no one said Sadiq Bay would be done in two years, a first round pick, or or even three years, or even be a pro. Sadiq Bay came to Villanova thinking, I'm going to be there for four years. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to major in accounting, and I'll probably play in Europe and then get into business with a Villanova alone. That was his plan. But he just improved so much that after his sophomore year, he was a first round, he's going to be a first round pick, probably top 15. So he had a real tough decision to make, and the decision was difficult because. He really wanted to stay and get his degree and, and he wanted to win a national championship. And so does his parents, but it was a smart move. So we want those guys to have to make that decision. That, that he's like the perfect Villanova guy for us. Um, or, or a Jalen Brunson who stayed for two years. He won a national championship. And at the end of his second year, uh, both his parents said to me, he, he would have been the same pick after his second year that he would have been after his third year. And after his second year, I had a meeting with his mom and dad. And I said, look, I, you know, he's won a national championship. I know he's ready for the NBA. I know he'll, he'll be a great NBA player. And they said, we agree, but I just want you to know, he's not going anywhere until he finishes his degree. And so he came back for a third year and accelerated his academic schedule so he could graduate in three years won a second national championship, national player of the year, and then was drafted in the second round as the national player of the year. So I was very fortunate to get find those kind of guys. And, it, and, and it's, it's, it's because of their parents. It's because of the coaches around them. And we really kind of, we look for those kind of guys that want to be in college, that want to be educated, that want to be coached. And that's not any criticism of the guys that do go one and done. It's just those guys can go other places, and there's other places that do that process better than us. We want the guys that really enjoy being in college and being educated. Player development, critical part of what you do in terms of improving these people, whether it's from a skills perspective, whether it's from a stamina, nutrition, mental. What are some of the things that you've done to really accelerate? and improve these players. There's gotta be a plan that you've, somehow you've developed with your staff and whatever to, to really take someone from point A all the way out to the NBA or beyond. 
well, you, you've mentioned a lot of it, Jed, and, 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 it's, and again, it's part, our recruiting process is, uh, is really educational. So we try to explain to the, to the recruit, like this is what we want, this is what we want you to embrace. You know, we use a, a saying that we, st we stole from Coach Belichick. You know, when you come to Villanova, you become us. We don't become you. So, and again, it's not to criticize any programs that do it differently. Everybody has to do it their way. We don't bring a great player in and then build the program and change what we do around him. We bring a great player in and we tell him, look, there's a lot, been a lot of great players before you and you're going to become one of those great players. And when you become one of those great players, then your responsibility is going to be to teach and pass it on to the younger players. So if, if you don't want that challenge and you don't want that responsibility when you become great, then this isn't the program for you. And the way you're going to become your best is going to be, we're going to monitor and, and, and teach you about sleep. We're going to monitor and teach you about hydration. We're going to monitor and teach you about flexibility, about conditioning, about recovery, about footwork, about shooting technique, about defending, rebounding. We're going to break down every aspect of your conditioning and training and every aspect of your basketball knowledge. And we're going to want you to be great at all of it. And we're going to teach it. And you're going to have to want it and embrace it. And there has to be voluntary cooperation. Like you, you have to want to be great at all those things or don't come here. So as you can imagine, if someone chooses that, you're getting a really special young man. And if the people around him, his parents, his coaches allow him to choose that, you're getting a special young man. So we, we get really special guys that voluntarily cooperate to allow us to coach them. You and I were talking earlier about football and a team sport. And I have to say, listening to you describe your environment brings me back to when I coached at Michigan with Bo Schembechler and how he always put it on the seniors. It was their responsibility. It was their team and it was their team, and the record was going to be seen for the seniors, for the upperclassmen. And that's kind of the responsibility. It sounds like you're putting on your players as they matriculate in years. There's a leadership and teaching responsibility as part of that uh, movement into being a senior or an upperclassman in terms of passing on that culture, the work habits, all the things that are important to being successful on and off the court. You're, you're exactly right. I, you know, I, I said that when we're recruiting them, we say to them, um, we don't, you become us, we don't become you. Because we want them to come in with a, with a, a, a humility, a curiosity to look up to those great, great players that are there and to learn from them. And, uh, and then we tell them, um, you know, we want you to become those guys one day. And then you're going to have that responsibility. And they don't really get that when they're coming in. Um, one of the things we try to teach them before they get there, usually they commit to us before they're seniors in high school. And we say to them, look, all right, now you've committed. You've picked your college choice. The best thing you can do to be a great Villanova basketball player is 
forget about Villanova until your senior year is over. If you're at, you know, if you're at X prep, be the best senior leader ever at X prep. Be the best basketball player, teammate ever at X prep. Have your coach say to the all the young guys, that's what being an X prep player is. That's that's follow his lead. And we tell them because if you learn to be good at that in high school, that's what we're going to expect of you when you become great at Villanova. So do it now. Don't worry about us. You got us. We got you. You're going to be here. Be here now. Concentrate. Don't, don't worry about getting to our games. Don't worry about following our games on TV. Be the best high school senior you can possibly be because we're going to want you to be that leader at Villanova. And what's, what's kind of interesting, Jed, is we've learned this through experience and we always would say we don't become you become us we don't become you but after they get there we let them know you know what when you become a junior and senior in this program we do become you That's right. and if you're not a great we are what our leaders are and whatever this team is in your junior and senior year is really what you are and we're family so we talk about family if you screw up and you're not good we're not getting rid of you you know, we, we got to live with you and keep teaching you. But if you're a junior and senior and you're not all in to being a Villanova basketball player and you're not continuing that great tradition that came before you, then that's then we're not going to be good. So that, that responsibility really is going to come on you and we're going to live with it. The game's evolved. And uh, the three-point three shot, the way you've used analytics to game plan and so forth, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you play a four-out, one-in offense, how that's evolved, how you've used the analytics and game planning and so forth? Yeah, this is, the, the use of analytics is, 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 is everybody knows, really interesting. And, and um, one of the first things that hit me with that is, is defensively um, limiting the number of three-point attempts is as valuable as limiting the makes. Um, and as we, we, we first looked at that from a defensive standpoint, and as we did, we started to realize, okay, if we're trying to limit that defensively, then offensively, we should be doing the same thing. And we got away from being concerned with our three-point field goal shooting percentage, and we got more interested in our makes in relation to the other team's makes and not percentage. Um, there's a value to a, myth, a missed three that is greater than the, the value of a missed two. Um, you know, we could go into that in depth, but it, uh, maybe yeah. for another time. But the one thing that we do that kind of goes against analytics is we really work on the mid-range game. And um, because we know defensively teams try to take away threes and they try to take away the rim because they know offensively that's you know, that's analytically where teams are trying to score. And they will give up that mid-range game. And the analytics will show you that people shoot a poor percentage 
in that mid-range game. And our answer to that is they shoot a poor percentage because it's usually a shot they're forced into and they're trying to get a three or a, a layup and they don't practice that shot. We practice that mid-range shot a lot. And again, we could go into a whole series of discussions about this, but we practice that mid-range shot a lot because we feel like the best defensive teams are going to take away threes and they're going to take away the rim. So that's the shot you're going to get against the best teams. And one of our philosophies is we want to practice to create habits that will make us successful in the most difficult situations. So we're not trying to practice to make ourselves successful in a home game against a mid-major team where we shoot 14 for 20 from three and we look great. That, those games don't concern us. When we're playing on the road at Kansas, refs are against us, crowds against us, Kansas is a great defensive team, they're at home, what kind of shots are you going to get in that game? You're going to go to the rim. You're probably not going to get fouls a lot. They're going to do a great job taking away three. That mid-range shot is available. So we practice it a lot. And so when we get – we'll take the three. We'll take the layup. But in the toughest situations, the shot you're going to get and end of the shot clock is going to be that mid-range, and we really practice it. You, you alluded to this earlier in terms of coaching development. You've got, I think, four of your assistants are now head coaches. It sounds like based on your experience with Carl Peterson helping you, that's been something that's been important to you in relationship to mentoring your coaches and helping them move on in their careers. Yeah, I, I, lo I love that, Jed. I, it's one of my, it's, um, you know, I say, you know, you coach it. When people ask you, like, you know, what do you love about coaching? We all love the game. We all, everybody loves the game and practice. But the relationships, and especially as you're doing it for a while and seeing where your assistants are um, and, and your former players and just seeing them in the business and, and excelling and, and raising families and knowing you had a small part of that and that unique relationship that a coach player or head coach assistant coach has that you don't talk about a lot but you just you just look each other in the eye and you know you both really helped each other you know like everything we've been able to accomplish that as a head coach we get a lot of credit for it's because we had great players and great assistants right so no they know they know they helped you you know you helped them with their careers and you know you help them. I don't know if there's many relationships you have in the world that are like that. And they're so special and unique. Um, and it's funny, you know, we have a lot of guys that are assistants in the NBA right now who, um, I, you know, I think will be head coaches one day. And it's going to be funny. They're going to they're gonna be head coaches one day. I'm going to, you know, I'll probably be out of it. And, you know, NBA head coach is much more prestigious than a college head coach. And, I'm going to be looking up to them, and 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 I I really look forward to that day. It's going to be really cool. Uh, and when I was talking to RC last week, Buford, who's the CEO now of the San Antonio Spurs, you know, he mentioned that they have a dinner in Las Vegas, and there are 84 people 
off out of their organization to have other roles in the NBA right now. So I mean, that's something that they, he and Coach Popovich take a lot of pride in as well. That's amazing. That, yeah, and you see that all over the NBA. You see that. I was able to coach with uh, Coach Popovich this summer uh, as an assistant coach on the World Cup team. And we were supposed to be doing the Olympics this summer. But right. You and Steve Kerr. Yeah. It was amazing to see. Like you just mentioned 84. I wouldn't have known that. But, you know, during the tryouts and everybody we came in contact with, it seemed like everybody came back to the Spurs at some time. They were with the Spurs. It was, it was incredible. You mentioned USA basketball. Talk about that from a coaching perspective. There you are with Steve Kerr, with Pop. How, how the interaction in terms of learnings and stories and things you might have taken away from them as it relates to coaching your team. Uh, Jed, it, it was you know, it was a coach's dream. Um, I like to be you know, a PhD. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how many times other coaches get this experience, but, you know, to be a, you know, once, when you're assistant, everybody will kind of let you into their practices. You can watch and everything. And when you get to be a head coach, you're so busy, you're kind of doing your thing. You know, you don't, you try to learn, you can watch video and stuff. You talk to people and just conversations you and I have had, you know, just, I, I try to learn. But being an assistant, assistant on that staff this summer so Greg Popovich the head coach Steve Kerr the assistant coach Jeff Van Gundy was in charge of scouting uh Lloyd Pierce uh assistant coach uh and me and you know I'm I, you know I'm the college I'm the scrub of that coaching staff and proud to say it and um of course Pop doesn't treat you that way but but you know it, you know, like they, they're all on an NBA level. They're talking NBA terminology. I'm catching up just listening, you know, trying to learn NBA terminology. It was so humbling and so educational, so inspiring to just be a part of that every day. And, um, and, it, and it was fun and funny. You know, there were certain things would happen. We'd go on the bench. I'm sitting next to Steve Kerr's on one side of me and uh, Jason Tatum's on the other side of me. And we, things that would happen in, in the game. And I'd be like, what the hell? And they'd be like, hey, welcome to the NBA, man. Like, hey, you know, in college, you could yell at that guy. You better just keep your mouth shut right now. And it was it was just incredible. It, it was a dream come true. And I, I really look forward to the Olympics. I hope we get to do it next summer. No, that, obviously, that's a, a great opportunity to represent our nation on, on the world stage. So that's and – with, and with that staff and you, that has to be – a you know, bonding and one of those memorable experiences. Exactly. Charity. Uh, I was talking to Tubby Smith the other day, and he's recovering from prostate cancer. I guess you're part of a, a group, Coaches Versus Cancer, that you've been a part of? Yeah, we have an incredible group in Philadelphia that we're, we're actually in transition right now. Um, so about 20 years ago when I came to Philly, um, Fran Dumpy was the head coach at University of Pennsylvania. Phil Martelli was the head coach at St. Joseph University. And, uh, and they said, uh, you know, let's, let's get, you know, let's get this coaches versus cancer thing going. And, you know, we were, we were raising like 50,000, 60,000 a year. And um, we, those guys, really those two were the leaders, Fran Dumpy and Phil Martelli. And they said, look, you know, we gotta, we gotta go corporate. And, um, 
here in Philadelphia is the headquarters, Blue Cross, um, and Blue Cross Blue Shield, their headquarters here in Philly, huge um, uh, insurance, healthcare network. And um, we, we went to the CEO and um, with a, a luncheon to say like, we need some corporate sponsorship. So we were raising maybe 50, 60,000 a year. And we started these events and, um, and he backed us. And, um, and he, he himself actually had cancer, but he started the corporate sponsorship. And to this, and now Jed, in Philadelphia with all the big five coaches and Drexel, we have all that we have a ball basketball black tie affair we have a golf outing but we on the monday after selection sunday at seven o'clock in the morning we have a thousand people on the floor of the palestra in philadelphia this monument to college basketball we have a breakfast for coaches versus cancer and everybody's getting ready for the NCAA tournament we're raising money for cancer so it's it's an incredible basketball community and it's really because of phil martelli and and um, and Fran Dumphy, that we, we created this, and we raise a million dollars over a million dollars a year, wow. and um, and but but Fran has retired, and Phil has moved on to be assistant at Michigan. So Steve Donahue from Penn's taken over now, and and um, and, and so now we got to keep this thing going. So it's 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 a really incredible um, relationship that all the coaches have here, and 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 a, and a great cause. So the uh, the NBA has moved the G League into competing for high school prospects. Uh, based on what I heard you talk about, that impact on the type of player you recruit probably doesn't have a major effect. Is that fair to say? Yeah, probably. Yeah, we, we we have to see here, Jed. But I, you know, I I think I think we're moving into some tumultuous times for, for college athletics, especially college basketball. But hopefully, uh, you know, similar to this Black Lives Matter issue, and it actually, it, it, it's, it's intertwined. Um, I think it's going to come out in the end pretty well. And I always, we always try to stick to and, and look for opportunities to be authentic. So I think the G League, uh, offering these players that might not want to be in college. They, you know, they, they have to go to college because it's the only path they want to be a professional basketball player. So giving them another option, I think, is authentic. You know, it's like pro baseball. They have another option. So if you go to college, you want to be a student, right? So that in itself is new and, and, and anything new is going to be difficult in the beginning, but I think it's a good thing. And then what's really going to be big, Jed, is next year, this name, image, and likeness issue, yes. you know, comes into play. And uh, I think it's time for, I, I wish it wasn't. Like, I wish that, I wish that college athletics was like division three, you know, where, you know, the coaches don't make that much. The schools aren't making that much. Guys are playing for the love of the game. They're, they're students first, basketball players second. I wish it was that way, but it's not. So it, there's so much money in it that now the players deserve 
to share in some of that revenue. So that's good. We're, we're going to have to start this next fall, and rightfully so. And I think in the beginning, it's going to be messy. But I think if we can clean it up, that we could get to the point where young men, women, at college athletes have the opportunity like they do in tennis or golf or baseball. If they don't want to go to college and they want to go straight into professional sports, they have a, they have a path. If they want to go to college, they, they're going because they want to be students. And if they're going there and they have an opportunity to benefit from a name, image, and likeness while they're there, they can do that. And, and if we can find a way to keep that authentic, that they're truly students and they're this, you know, they're going to class and that's why they're there and they're being educated and they're playing high level athletics. If we can do that, I, I think we could be at a new place in college. Athletics can remain the, the, the beautiful part of our American landscape that it is. And athletes that just want to specifically just be professionals can do that also. Well, I mean, you and I both know, haven't been in recruiting for a long period of time, that those that this name, image, and likeness could get hairy as it relates oh, yeah. as it relates to uh, boosters and alumni and other third-party people that are ingrained in your sport of basketball, which has to be challenging. Definitely, definitely, and that's why I say I think it's going to be a little messy in the beginning. Because it's new, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's going to be messy. Um, Think, thinking now, about, I guess, uh, your team isn't coming back until what, the end of August in terms of coming on campus. Uh, right now, right now we're going to be August 3rd, but, August we, 3rd. Okay. but we know it, it, that might be, that still might be pushed back. Have you developed any unique techniques in terms of staying in contact with your players? Do you have them taping themselves and sending those videos back to you? Or are there any unique coaching uh, advantages you think you might have gotten out of this? The use of the use of Zoom has been incredible. Um, I, I don't know, you know, enough about the, the company Zoom, but. <laughs> They have to be their their uh, their stock price. If they have, it's got to be through the roof because we are we are you we are all using it um, as you and I are right now, right. Um, and it's really effective. Like, like in recruiting, I find it far more effective than you know what we've been doing. Just calling guys on the phone and even going to meet with them at their schools. You know, we are limited for time and we're able to sit with the players and go through video and, and, and ask questions and teach and talk. So you can you can literally evaluate the guy's coachability, the guy's basketball IQ. It's, it's been incredible. And we've been doing the same thing with our players, you know, um, in, in, the, in the summer. You know, there'll be a lot of times I always try to be around with the players to stop in and players will stop in my office and we'll be talking and somebody else will stop in, interrupt, and somebody else will stop in, interrupt. It's, it's given you, um, you know, specific one-on-one -on -one time, valuable time with your players and your, and your recruits that, 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 that have, I think we're all going to, even with your staff, that we're all going to continue to use 
Um, and, you know, it can save a lot of money in recruiting and it, and it can really increase your um, connectivity as a staff and, and with your players. George Floyd's murder a little over a month ago has really changed the makeup of our country in terms of the people have felt repressed and uh, coaches, players have all had different ways they have worked with their teams and so forth. What do you see as your role, your coach's role, your player's role as it relates to being an active participant in the different movements and in the cause of racial justice? Each one of those questions that you asked and each one of those issues, I keep learning about every day. And there's, there's so many um, levels of this. You know, for instance, just being a, um, an educated person in, in, in how it relates to racism. Um, I, I've been, right before I talked with you, I, I'm, I'm on this, uh, this, this Zoom session with college coaches um, across the country that was set up by a group in Washington, D.C., uh, just educating all of us about racism. It's, it's, it's incredible um, how our history has been taught to us and it has misled all of us as to the black lives and, and their path through our history. Um, you know, what we, uh, and, and, and the, the, the natural racism that is just in our society based on the fact that, you know, as a country, we enslaved a group of people, which automatically creates supremacy. You know, if you, if you go out and take people from their country to your country and you make them slaves, you, you have created white supremacy, you know? And then how over our history, we've maintained that white supremacy in intelligent and tactful ways. So I'm learning a, about that, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm trying, we're trying to educate our players about that. We're educating our players about action. Um, we had everybody on our team get their family to fill out the census, just simply so we know the, the, the power of um, African-American people in this country and how many we have. And um, secondly, we're, we're educating them about their um, districts where they vote at home and where they live. And is there, is there do they have a police chief? Do they have a sheriff? Is that police chief or sheriff um, voted into office or are they appointed? Um, who was the district attorney? You know, is that a voted position or appointed position? Um, is there a supervisor of your county? Is there a mayor of your town? Is it, you know, who do you vote for there? Um, and, and impact and, and, and uh, influence those people about police reform and about social injustice. So it's, it's constant. It, it, and, and I think we have a responsibility as um, coaches to educate our players, but I think we also have a responsibility as coaches to, because we have such close relationships 
with African-American young people and their families. As coaches, we're blessed to have those relationships where maybe um, administrators at our on our campuses or donors of our campuses don't have that experience. We have to use that experience to, to help educate them. That's a responsibility we have. So this is really um, complex on a lot of levels and, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually enjoying the education of it. The responsibility can be daunting sometimes, but it's, I think this is a time in our history that's, that's, that's really valuable. And I think we're gonna come out of, this is gonna be tough for a while, but I think we're gonna come out of this with a, a better country and, and um, I think a better society. I agree with you. The San Antonio Spurs with RC, they, when this all happened, they had a town hall meeting on Zoom and they had um, have produced what they call Spurs Voices. And it's on Instagram and it's every one of their different people, players and so forth, talking about what they feel about, you know, their, their race and their fears and their anxieties. And one of the, it's it's gut wrenching to listen to some of these, and um, I, I think how RC was able to get these people to talk from the heart about what the issues are and let other people really feel that it was uncommonly well received and you know, just a part of why the Spurs are this unique organization where they're able to share these feelings. I saw in the newspaper that some black executives now are starting to talk about some of these feelings and the opportunity to listen as you pointed out I think is uh, really really critical to being able to you know move our country our organization and as you listen to your players being able to have them feel comfortable articulating some of their feelings exactly man I, and you know as we talked about authenticity I think it, it dispers, you know, it comes from pop and, and RC. And this is this is something that they've been talking about before any of this happened. You know, right. pop and um, vocal about this and about black lives and they 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 they've been I, I love again, I love their authenticity. They're a professional sports organization. It also is a family, and they found that way to um, be real about both. You know, hey, we are, we're professionals, but we're also a family and a team, and um, and both can work together, and 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 we're part of this community. And um, again, they were doing this before any of this happened, so now that it happens, it's just natural for them to to be leaders in, in how do we grow and learn from this. Exactly, they, they moved it from the basketball side to when RC took over to the business side. So now it's ingrained on both sides of the house as opposed to being separated. Exactly, exactly. Coach, you represent what's outstanding about college athletics. You're, you approach it with integrity, ethics, doing what's best for the student athlete on and off the court and a role model, you know, not just in sports, but for leadership in our country. So I, I, I thank you for giving me the time to visit with you. 
and uh, hopefully um, you enjoyed the experience. I really did, Jed. I love talking to you and uh, look forward to doing more of it in the future.